You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. So if you've listened to me talk about my own menopause experience on this show, as well as on other shows that I've been on, you've heard me say over and over that it feels like my muscles disappeared overnight. And I am not the first or only person to say this. It's something I hear again and again. And though no, technically muscle loss in menopause does not happen over a 24-hour period, it does indeed happen quite quickly. And this week, I sat down with sports scientist Sam Moore to tell us all about it. I saw Sam present her research on body composition, activity, and nutrition in menopause at the Female Athlete Conference earlier this year, and I immediately knew I had to have her on the show. Though she is quite young herself, menopause became her passion after she watched how much her own very athletic mom struggled through the transition. So we talk all about what happens, what it means for how we experience menopause, and of course, what to do about it. Sam is an applied sports scientist and human movement science doctoral student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's School of Medicine, where she researches endocrine-related topics of applied female athlete sports science. Prior to coming to Carolina, Sam was with the NC State Wolfpack from 2019 to 2021 as the Director of Sports Science and Assistant Strength and Conditioning Coach, and as the first woman to serve as a Director of Sports Science in the NCAA, Sam implemented a revolutionary and evidence-informed framework of women-specific training designed based on the hormonal landscape of the Wolfpack female athletes, which I think is really very cool. You can learn more about her and her work at moresportscience.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Before we get to it, as always, check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Feisty Menopause. Please sign up for my free weekly menopause blog at feistymenopause.com. While you're there, check out our Level Up membership where you can meet with menopause training experts each and every month, several times a month. And finally, I'd like to give a very quick thanks to AminoCo for their continued support of the show. I have been using their Heal product, which blends amino acids, essential amino acids with creatine, and I love it. I started lifting again after a little hiatus. I, I slipped away over the summer three or four times a week, and I've also been doing a local 5K cross-country race every week, and I thought I'd be super duper sore, and I'm not. This stuff is awesome, and I really appreciate their support. Thanks, AminoCo. All right, enough of me. Let's have a few words about those awesome sponsors and get on with the show. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. 
Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter's taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play, all caps, one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. All right. Well, Sam, I'm really excited to talk to you. You know, I, I we 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 came together through Dr. Stacy Sims, who everybody knows I, you know, co-wrote some of these books with and I've known for a very long time. And I've been wanting to do a show on muscles particularly and like, do you know anybody? And she immediately said, You've got to talk to Sam Moore. So mm-hmm. and then I saw you at the female athlete conference. I was like, Yes, I do. So yeah. thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um I mean, I, I know that we'll probably get to it, but I, I definitely think very, very highly of Dr. Sims. Um, and I also love muscle. So I'm excited. <laughs> here. Well, we're, we're, we're off to a good start then because I love muscle too. And I think uh, I really, I mean, we're, we're being, we're being light here, but I really do think it is everything. I mean, I really do. I think it's so important and that this audience particularly you know, we came up, Sam, in a time, and I'm so glad that you're not coming up in the same time, uh, 
where women were, and I still hear that they're a little afraid of that, like bulky and all this stuff, but women really were not encouraged. If anything, they were discouraged from lifting anything heavy. All I wrote for shape, fitness, blah, blah, blah. And all the recommendations were five to eight pound dumbbells, right? Like every single one. And I, I look back now and it makes me kind of furious, honestly, that I, that I was even part of that. And I'm just on this karma bus trying to erase that karma because, you know, we we lift like a bag of sugar. It weighs more, you know, like anything that you're carrying in the grocery store. Like I carry a 40 pound, pound you know, dog food bag and I'm telling people eight pound dumbbells. And it's just, um, yeah. So I'm glad that we're here and I'm glad this conversation is changing because I do think it's so important. Yeah. I, I mean, I also like I always think about like holding a child on your hip. Like, I mean, I don't have any children, but like thinking about my mom and my grandma and, you know, like all these generations of women that have been doing laborious tasks um, that, you know, not only would resistance training help, but like you're already doing it in so many different ways. Uh, and and I, I totally agree. I think that the message is changing. You know, I think in my undergrad, I wrote uh, like my my thesis paper for exercise physiology on um, CrossFit. And, you know, on whatever side of the, of the aisle that you fall in your opinion towards CrossFit, I think one thing that it has done well is it's put strong women, you know, at the forefront and really centered that. And I think, again, there's opinions on strong women that, you know, like as a woman, it doesn't matter what you are just by existing, it's going to be politicized and debated. Uh, but I think that is one thing that it's a sign of the times, if you will, that, that, those women can be successful and can be accomplished and can be, you know, celebrated and praised for their physicality. Uh, and so I, I'm also grateful that, that times are changing. Um, and, and, you know, the more we know, the, the better we do. hundred percent. And I, I agree. CrossFit has its, as everything does, you know, not every, no, nothing is all hundred percent positive and it certainly has some you know, shortcomings, especially early on, I would say, but by and large, that has been a huge positive in my mind. Like just the, the focus on, you know, being strong, taking up space, being proud of those things. It's, I can't say enough good things about that knockoff effect. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So tell us a bit, a bit like how you got into this field. You know, you mentioned Dr. Stacy Sims. Um, I heard on another podcast that you had heard her on a podcast. And that was a pivotal moment. So I'd love a bit more of that backstory. Yeah, it's funny. I was just talking with uh, my faculty advisor here, Dr. Abby Smith Ryan about it this morning. Mm, she's been on the um, show. I, I love her. Oh my gosh. I know I listened to her episode. Um, she, I was telling her about how, when I was an undergrad, um, I was really not a fan of exercise physiology. I like, I did well in the class because I was an athlete. So I had to get a good GPA. Um, and I had a great professor for it, Dr. Armstrong at Western Oregon, but it didn't light me up by any means. Um, and I think it was because I, I was really like, I chose an applied program. So I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach because I had, I was a two sport collegiate athlete. I had suffered a really significant knee injury my freshman year, um, like two months into the season, right after I had, I had gotten a starting spot. Uh, and my first surgery was really, really difficult. Uh, it was nine months. It was a, a micro fracture, um, which a lot of people don't come back from. Um, 
And so it, it was just, it was really taxing on me. And I had always kind of like, I wrote a paper my freshman year in college that said that I was put here, you know, whatever you believe in, if it's, if it's the string theory or God or, you know, vibes or whatever it is, whatever the higher power is, they put me here to play volleyball. That's what I thought that my purpose was, was to play volleyball. Everything about me, my personality, my physicality, my genetics, it was made for volleyball. And there was no life past volleyball for me. And so it wasn't until I had just turned 18 years old and the surgeon said to me, you can keep playing if you want. Most athletes don't. Most athletes, they, they take this surgery, they, you know, ride off, you know, they do what they need to do. What was it? If you don't mind me interrupting just to get, no, like- yeah, it's okay. Most people think it's an ACL. My ACL right. was, it was primo. It was great. My ACL was totally intact. It was like the only thing really holding my knee together. Uh, I was, so I was a setter and I had released from the back row. There was a ball that got dug 50, 50 on the net. And so I jumped up from the back row and and set the ball back on our side to our hitter. And when I came down, it's interesting because I wasn't across the line and we were playing BYU and they weren't across the line. Um, but uh, the other player's foot was in front of mine. And so I just, I didn't land on it, but I landed right into it and it just kind of was wonky. And what happened is I came down straight on my knee and I dislocated my patella. And when I dislocated it, I tore off uh, my all my patellar cartilage, both my meniscuses, my MCL, um, my, there's a little tiny ligament called your MPFL that Mm -hmm. is your medial patellofemoral ligament gone, um, just obliterated it. Uh, and, and I, I remember like I landed and I said, I need a sub. I don't know what's wrong. Like something's wrong with my knee. I need a sub, but I got up and walked off the court. I went to the training room. Um, my athletic trainer said, you know, here's like a, a sleeve, with a a hole in the middle, like you're just your basic McDavid sleeve. He said, put the hole on your kneecap. And I'll never forget. I reached out because I um, like to wear my knee pads, like on my shins. I kind of wear them as like shin guards. It's a style thing. Um, (laughs) They don't do much down there, but you know, I think it looks cool. And so I put my hand on my kneecap and, and I was like, I don't want to be a downer, but my kneecap isn't, is not there. Uh, And he said, well, this is where it's supposed to be. And he slid it up. And I was like, that was the first time I was like, whoa, that hurts. And then my coach came in and he said, you know, like, this is our starting setter. Like we need her back on the court. So I jumped off and then my knee just buckled. And so we know now that it dislocated and and it came back in. Um, And like I said, I tore off all my patellar cartilage. Um, Some of my patella itself um, bruised my femur. I have some osteocondyle fractures on my femur, Um, tore both of my meniscuses, just blew out my MPFL. And so at the time, now they have way more surgical options for that kind of injury. But at the time, the only option was a microfracture. And so they went in, they did a microfracture, cut out some of my meniscuses, um, did a lateral release. I remember I got pictures of like all the loose bodies that came out of it. And it was, I mean, it was a, it was a ton. Uh, and because it was a patellar microfracture, it was 15 weeks with the three weeks before surgery and then the 12 after of, of non-weight bearing. And I had to be in a locked out leg brace. Um, wow. and, and yeah, and it was, they said that ultimately, like if you look at it on camera, they said that the strength of my quads is what saved my femur that just based on like how much speed I had, like I, I should have kind of snapped my femur was, was the thought. Um, and I used to be able to jump high. Gosh, those were the days. Uh, and so, so I had my first surgery. It was nine months until I played volleyball again. I came back. I didn't redshirt. 
And that was kind of where I saw this path of like, okay, there is, has to be a life after volleyball. So I'll, I'll coach volleyball. Like I, my mom's a coach. Like I've been coaching since I was young. I'll coach volleyball. And I watched the way that my strength coaches fought for me and fought for my recovery. Whereas my sport coaches were like, she's our starting setter. We need her back a red shirt season. I couldn't redshirt my freshman year because I played in every match. And so going into my sophomore year, my knee was like maybe 30 or 40%. Like it was not. I remember we had to do single leg broad jumps and my, my injured knee was like a two and a half foot broad jump. And my non-injured knee was like six and a half feet. Like it was, I mean, it was just nothing. Um, and my strength coaches are the ones I felt like that, that had my best interests at heart. And so that's when I made a big shift to like strength and conditioning. That's what I would like to do. I ended up, uh, I played the rest of my volleyball season. I also competed on the track team for two seasons as a multi-event specialist. Um, and then I had to have my second surgery after I graduated. Um, I had an offer to go play pro or potentially go run my fifth year, had to get a second surgery. The surgeon was like, you're yeah, like you're done. You shouldn't have been playing this far. Um, and so I, you know, medically retired, if you will. And so that's really, I mean, I went through a lot of like kind of soul searching at that point. I had to walk away from volleyball and, um, you know, I had some internships in strength and conditioning, but I just kind of had to take some time. And so I worked for um, a coffee company. I was a barista. I was a teacher. And so it was after I was in my second teaching position. I was a health and PE teacher for a middle school and a head track coach. And I called up my former mentor, Cat Wade, and I said, Cat Wade, I am good at teaching, but I do not enjoy it. And this, I, I don't love it. Like you have to love it to do this full time. And I know I want to get back into college sports. I don't think I want to get exactly back into strength and conditioning because I'd had a job backup at UP at that point. And so it's interesting that, you know, there were a couple light bulb moments in it, but the first one, she was like, okay, here's this list of people. Just, just like follow these people. Um, you know, these are good people in the field of, of collegiate sports. And I was like, okay. And then one day she's a really big, um, mobility functional movement gal. And she was listening to Kelly Starrett's podcast. the ah. mobility. And so she sent me, and I've always been a big feminist. I've always been very out loud about what women deserve and that whatever you're giving us, it's probably not good enough. Uh, and she knew that about me. And so she heard Dr. Sims podcast with Kelly Starrett and she sent it to me and that, is a real, that was a big turning point for me where I decided to go get a PhD at that point, because I said, this is something that I know nothing about. I, every day on my lunch break in my little cinder block PE office, I would get on Google scholar and I would look up articles about phase-based training, about menstrual cycle and performance, anything that I could find that was female physiology and some sort of athletic outcome. That was all I did for a year. And so I enrolled in a, in a remote PhD program to start the coursework for it. Like that was definitely a big turning point for me in terms of this is like, I always felt like I had all these varied interests, like social justice was really big for me, but strength and conditioning was really big for me, but being a woman in sport. And I felt like for the first time I was like, this is my avenue of where all of these interests really fit together. So it's definitely, it's a long story, but, um, but yeah, that was, it was a really pivotal moment for me for sure. That's cool. And it's funny, Kelly Starrett to this day, almost three years later, is still the only man male that has ever been on this show. <laughs> Pretty good one to have, I'd say. <laughs> yes. And because he's, I had him on early on, largely because he has been such a tremendous ally for um, 
Dr. Sim's work and our work together. And I just, you know, and he's just a gem of a human, but yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Super, super cool. So, I mean, yeah. So now your research does focus in on, you know, the metabolic and performance effects of female sex hormones and interventions in women's health and performance. Can you shine a light on what some of your biggest light bulb moments have been once you got into it? Yeah. I, the, I think the, um, there've been a few Dr. Sims was obviously, that was like the first one that I can remember that was really defining. I also, after my job there, I applied for an internship at university of Utah as sports science. And that's the first time I ever, like I got, I was chosen for it. I don't really know why, but I'm not going to ask any follow-up questions to um, Dr. Ernie Reimer who hired me. Um, But I remember I didn't know what sports science was. And it was when I got there that he, like I was picking up my life, driving to Salt Lake City for an unpaid internship. And I called him and I was like, I'm on the way. And I said, do you think maybe you could just give me a definition of what sports science is? And he said, you'll figure it out when you get here. And I was like, okay, we're really taking risks. Okay, great. Uh, And my experience at Utah was um, he taught me sports science through a lens of problem solving. And he was like, you can choose whatever. Cause a lot of times when you're young in strength and conditioning or sports science, people say like, don't pigeonhole yourself. And I remember I had that conversation. I said, I want to, I want to pigeonhole myself. And what I want to pigeonhole myself into is women. And is it really a pigeonhole when it's 51% of the population? Some would say no, but most would say yes. And so I said, if, you know, if, if that's what sports science is, if it's problem solving, if it's, you know, identify a problem, research, innovate implement it, audit it. I can do that for women. And now the way that I can infuse gender equity into sport, now I have a a process, right? And so from there, that's when I applied for the job at NC State and I got hired there. And when I was at NC State, that's when I took this framework that I had built myself from my little PE dungeon um, of how to train female athletes based on their hormonal landscape. So menstrual cycle, birth control, amenorrhea, the pill versus an IUD, all of those things went into this framework. And I had a boss that, that hired me to do it. And so that was another big one of like, there are people in this world that, that don't necessarily need to know how to do it, but understand that it's important and understand that it is the future and it is where things are going. And it is feasible. I think the feasibility part of it, like that is another thing when, you know, sometimes people will say like, well, you can't do it. Cause like not all your athletes are in the same phase hundred percent, but I don't need them to be right. Like the feasibility is I've already done it. I've done it in multiple different ways with multiple different teams in the field at a, a division one power five university with highly competitive elite female athletes. So, so check in a team environment, right? Like I've, I've already done that before, but I came up against this, like when trying to get other people to do it, it was, there's not enough research. There's not enough. And I was like, okay, I'll figure out how to do research, I guess. Then let me just teach myself how to do it. Right. I'm sure I taught myself Excel. I taught myself catapult. I can teach myself research. How hard can it be? Turns out very hard. Uh, so then the next one was when I was on a podcast I got an email from Dr. Smith Ryan and there was a lot of conversations. And at one point she said, um, we're talking about the potential of me coming to be her student and, and the funding, you know, that, and I was like, wow, no one in my family has ever received an academic scholarship. Like I, were they real? Mm, Didn't know. Didn't, I didn't know that. Um, We have, if anyone went to college, it was on an athletic scholarship. Um, And so she said, you know, you're good enough to not have to pay for school. And I was like, whoa. 
really me? You think that's crazy. Um, and so that part of it, like the process of like, I've always, for a long time, I've known that, that it matters. It matters how we train women. It matters that like, even the, the linear periodization training scheme that, that is the default that we say like, that's, you know, that that's the one it was done on Soviet union, like weightlifters that were using testosterone. So like, (laughs) Not only is it really not that applicable to like female hormones, but is it really even applicable to the default male that's not doping? Who's to say, you know, so what is the best way to do it? Like when we say there's not enough research for phase-based training, okay, but there is research for linear, you know, like I think that's my part of it is, is I realized through this process is that like it is, it's my responsibility to question everything. What are the protocols? What can we take research on men and apply it to women in across the board? Are there some areas that, that physiologically it does make sense? And some, like, I just, I think that it, it begs the question for us to, to evaluate and audit everything we do. Like our, our, you know, pregame fueling, is that based on research with women? I, probably not is what, what I would get, you know, like it is like every step of the way, every strategy that we have how do we know that? And where does that come from? And is that a question now that I need to add to my list to go answer? And so I think that really was an important moment for me was it's important to take this critical lens to everything that we do and understand where those data came from. And it's not good enough anymore to just say, well, this is what the research says. Well, what research and how was it done? And evaluate you know, the experimental design and the subjects and, you know, even research on the menstrual cycle, it's not perfect. And there, you know, we lack a lot of quantity, but what do we have and what decisions can we make from what we have? And then where do we need to go next? Yeah. And that's, you know, it's an exciting time and it's, and I'm very grateful for people like Abby Smith, Ryan and yourself. And of course, you know, Stacey Sims and everyone else who's come into this field, which is growing all the time. I mean, it's, I love the idea that if we're more than half of the population, why is, why are we the niche? (laughs) I remember I was at this, um, I was at a conference. I won't say which conference, but I was presenting some data at a conference and there was a man who came up to me and it was on creatine and creatine supplementation across the menstrual cycle. And, um, and he said, wow, like, this is so interesting. And I was like, totally it is. And then he goes, it's so cool the way that you thought out of the box with the whole menstrual cycle thing. And I was like, unless you have a uterus, then it is quite literally the box. This is, (laughs) this is where we stay, you know? (laughs) And so like, part of me is like, I, I get it for, for people that have, that don't have a menstrual cycle, like that wouldn't cross their mind. And I think, you know, like we, we also can't fault like the, the researchers or the coaches that came before us because most of them were men. Most of them, like, I mean, I didn't even think about my own birth control usage or my menstrual cycle when I was a collegiate athlete that didn't, I knew that, that it affected me, but I thought it was my responsibility to just like push it down and like get the job done whatever I needed to do that day. So it's like, it, it can't, it's not like shameful that it has quote unquote, like taken this long. Like I, I get it. I absolutely get it, but it's also why like we need to be having these conversations and, and this education of like, I hear what you're saying, my guy, but also it's not outside of the box at all. It is the box. So let's redraw those lines. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, 100%. It, I, it might be shameful for other reasons, like, well, women not being able to vote or not, you know, being their own property, you know, like bigger picture things, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Might be, but not because those coaches were in the positions that they were the trainers. So yeah, you couldn't agree more. I mean, once you, and once you know better, if you don't do better, then that's on you, you know? Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, Plus, even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. So I want to, you know, I love this whole, like, how we we have arrived here. And I want to hear a bit more. You, you presented some of your work at that female athlete conference, which I thought was really great because it is for this audience. You know, you were looking at perimenopausal women and postmenopausal women. And one of, you know, the tagline of the show is like, we're trying to help you no matter what your hormones are doing. Right. And I, so from your research, like this is, you know, perimenopause, the menopause transition becomes sort of this precarious time for like muscle loss and, you know, body composition changes. What have your findings been there with regards to training? And then we can talk about nutrition, you know, after that. Yeah. So it's a good question. I think particularly because when we, even when we talk about like the female athlete conference, we assume that that's 18 to 24 year old eumenorrheic or, you know, oral contraceptive users. Like it's just yeah. this very limited thing. And I know when I came to UNC, I didn't anticipate having, getting experience in, in this research line of the menopause transition whatsoever, but 
a year prior to that, um, when when COVID kind of first hit, I had I had just moved out to North Carolina a few months prior. And so I didn't know anyone and I lived by myself. And so I told my boss, I'm going to move home. I'm just going to fly home and buy a one-way ticket. Let me know when I need to come back and we can train athletes again. And he said, okay. So I hoofed it back to Oregon. I was like 26 or 27, something like that, uh, living at my parents' house again for an undisclosed amount of time. And, uh, and my mom was really in the thick of Perry. And she was gaining weight and she didn't understand why. And all of the usual strategies that she has to like take off a couple extra pounds after Christmas or whatever it is, none of it was working. And then she was experiencing these emotional changes. She's like, I remember her saying, she said, I I don't want to be this weak in front of my daughter because I don't want you to see me as this weak woman. But she said, I can't trust the way that I feel and I can't trust my mind and I can't trust my heart. And I don't know when I have a reaction to something of like, is this really the way I feel? Or are these like my hormones or my emotions? She said, I I don't know myself for the first time in 50 years, you know? And, and for her, she was a a two-time national champion, collegiate, all-American volleyball player. So she has been fit. When I was growing up, she did marathons. She did a triathlon for her 40-year-old birthday. That was her gift to herself was completing her first triathlon. Like she is so active and competitive. And so for her to come to me, we, we had this agreement. I made her like sign a contract where like, we're going to hide the scale. We're not going to look at the number on the scale. We're going to talk about how we feel in our body and how we feel in our clothes. And if we feel strong and things like that. And so we had to have, we had to agree on like, what are the key performance indicators of perimenopause for you right now? And what can we do? And that's when a lot of you and Dr. Sims work came out, especially around like strength training for menopause and, uh, and protein intake and and things like that. And Dr. Smith Ryan had a paper about like creatine across the lifespan. And so I pulled together as many resources as I could to help her get through this. And then when I got to UNC, one of the projects that I was given was coordinating the longitudinal follow-up arm of this initial cross-sectional study. And so what we found or what they found in the cross-sectional study uh, was that in perimenopause, it is this sort of upside down world. We don't, you know, in terms of hormones, like all these changes, they're kind of attributed to estrogen loss, but really, if we look at it, it's, it's like this wild roller coaster of estrogen. It's really high highs and low lows. It's not consistent. It's not, uh, stable. It doesn't, you know, like the way that FSH responds with estrogen and the inhibins, it it doesn't follow. It's like a desynchronization of these negative feedback systems. And so these changes are, they're so multifactorial, but kind of broadly, what what research has has demonstrated is that there's a lean mass loss. So just a a loss of the overall quantity of, of muscle, there's a gain in body fat, but there's also this redistribution from more of our, our hips to our abdomen. And there's an accumulation of visceral adipose tissue, which is more metabolically active and has worse outcomes for cardiovascular diseases and cardiometabolic diseases and things like that. And so, but then also uh, Dr. Smith Ryan just had a paper come out earlier this year that showed that there was higher protein turnover in perimenopause and also worse muscle quality. And so worse muscle quality means like when we take an ultrasound scan of the contractile muscle fibers and then the non-contractile fibers, which are like intramuscular fat and connective tissue, there's an increase in the amount of intramuscular fat in those non-contractile fibers. So we're losing 
the amount of muscle, we're losing quality of muscle, and we see this increased protein turnover. And so increased protein turnover means there's more muscle breakdown than there is muscle building, right? And so those are all really meaningful things. And, and it's really specific to this perimenopausal window. Like when we look at longitudinal studies, it's not just that from pre to post-menopause that women are like consistently losing their muscle and gaining fat. It's that peri, this window shows this like twofold increase. And then it, it kind of levels out two to three years into post-menopause, but really in peri, it's this accelerated loss of muscle, loss of muscle quality and increase in body fat. And so we've used some of those uh, cross-sectional and longitudinal evaluations to form um, some of our recommendations for women moving forward. Yeah. And let's, let's get into that. Like what, what were your recommendations moving forward for these women? Well, I think a big one, and this is something, this is a, way more in Dr. Smith Ryan's wheelhouse, but I'll do my best. Um, okay. is just, it's just protein intake, right? So if we're, if we're, um, we have a higher breakdown than we do synthesis, then, then increasing the protein intake and like our, our macronutrient distribution, um, because we also see a blunting of, of metabolic rate. So, you know, a reduction of, of caloric burn, but we see an increase, uh, in protein oxidation and a decrease in fat oxidation. So there's this metabolic inflexibility where we're not burning calories based on the demands, um, we're there's, there's these changes. And so there's this increase in, in protein oxidation to kind of maybe account for or counteract this decrease in fat oxidation. And that's really why we see that increase in, in protein turnover and that increased protein catabolism. And so when we're talking about like catabolism, we can think of it as kind of breaking down of muscle at default. So increasing the percentage of your protein intake to be able to kind of blunt that catabolism. But then also uh, one of the unique findings in the analysis that I just wrote and presented at a female athlete conference is percent body fat was predicted almost half of the variability in menopause symptoms. So what do you mean by that? So um, we counted like total menopause symptoms. So the number, so we use the North American Menopause Society mm -hmm. questionnaire uh, and the it's a, you know, 30 plus symptoms that occur across the menopause transition. And so perimenopause significantly and consistently has the highest symptom burden. So they're experiencing the most symptoms at the, at the highest severity and percent body fat, the higher that the, at that percent body fat was just for perimenopausal women. It didn't have the same relationship in, in pre or in post. It was only within peri, the higher the percent body fat, the higher number of symptoms being experienced. And so there's this, there's this, you know, change in, uh, in muscle, but then also this change in fat. So we see these things going, having this inverse relationship and then this relationship with symptoms. So the experience of menopause. And the reason that I bring that up is because the other part of it is that we layered on Fitbit data. And what we saw with Fitbit was again, only within perimenopause. We didn't see it with and our, our pre-menopausal cohort was at least 35 years old. So they were only a few years different from the peri group. And then our post group, only within peri, that high intensity activity had a significant relationship with percent body fat. So the more activity that was done in the high intensity band, the lower the percent body fat, but also that high intensity activity had a, the same relationship 
with menopause symptoms. So the more high intensity activity, the less menopause symptoms, but there were no relationships with moderate intensity activity with low intensity activity. It had to be high intensity. So it goes back to exactly what you said at the beginning, where for so long women were told, you know, five to eight pound dumbbells, walking, gardening, the majority of the randomized controlled trials to look at exercise on menopause symptoms and body comp are moderate aerobic activity, but really it's more critical in peri than ever to do high intensity exercise. And that can be high intensity interval training that includes high intensity resistance training, but making sure that our nutrition is supporting that. So making sure that we're getting that protein intake to be able to build those muscles and maintain them. But the high intensity activity part of it is is so critical in that window. And did that include heavy resistance training in there? There's a little overlap between like what I would consider like a high intensity, like a you could do a kettlebell workout, right? That is very high intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not necessarily like lifting heavy shit, as Stacy would say. You know, yeah. where, where do those things work? That's a good question. So the, so the initial study was observational. So it was just them wearing their Fitbits for seven days. And so it was more so based on METs off of heart rate conversions. Um, We, what our group thinks is, is that we think that high intensity interval training would be incredibly beneficial from cardiovascular perspective, from a metabolism perspective, but also uh, HIT does increase hypertrophy, so muscle gain and muscle quality. But then additionally, on the other side, lifting heavy shit, as the great ones do say, uh, would be beneficial as well. So like the bone, the impacts of bone, it does take longer for bone adaptations to occur. Um, so like in some, you know, eight to 12 week studies, that's likely not long enough to see significant changes in bone density, but thinking about those changes in osteoporosis and bone density and, and how resistance training can help maintain a muscle quality, uh, a hypertrophy, but then also some bone outcomes as well. So it's a, it's a great question. I would say, do it all. But the study that we looked at was more so based on um, heart rate. So more of like a high intensity from a cardiorespiratory value. Excellent. And then are those protein recommendations the same ones that um, Abby Smith-Ryan and and Stacy are recommending? Yeah. So usually at the end of every visit, we have a summary sheet that we um, give our subjects and we talk through like all of their values. It's kind of, it's our way of like saying we haven't gotten a grant to be able to pay you. So we're paying for this study out of Dr. Smith Ryan's lab funds, but here's what we can give you. Uh, and so when we do that, we'll use their, um, their RMR values from indirect calorimetry to estimate uh, their daily energy expenditure and then energy intake recommendations. And then we do it by macronutrient. And so usually for peri and post, we'll go like a 30% intake of protein. So 30% of the calories consumed over the day um, should be protein, which is, I mean, I always make the joke, it never gets old, that it's like a full-time job to eat enough protein. You know, like it's it's exhausting. I'm, I'm a large individual. I'm six feet tall and like 185 pounds. And I have to eat like 200 grams of protein a day. It's exhausting. How do you do it? (laughs) Well, I'm not a great one to follow. Uh, pro breakfast. So, um, anytime, like I try to be, have a really heavy protein in my breakfast. I keep 
um, bags of protein powder at my desk at work. So I'll have at least one shake a day. Um, and then Dr. Smith Ryan likes to give the recommendation of like, if you can get 30 grams at each meal, right. that is going to put you in a really good spot. So if you can get 30 grams at each meal and then a couple protein snacks per day, then that can be really helpful. Yeah. That's what I recommend too, because at some point, I mean, the numbers just become this, this numbers game becomes mind boggling. And I, I, I'm weary of telling people to like maniacally track, you know, every gram. So I think that that's a, I think that's just like such a good common sense uh, barometer for them. And I think, I think to that point, um, like, I mean, I'm a grad student, so, you know, we've got a million different things going in every way, but so do women, right? So for me to say it's difficult for me to track my protein intake every day, it's just as, if not more difficult for uh, a 40 year old woman who's in a full-time job, who's got, you know, two middle schoolers, like, you know, there's just so much going on in the multitasking. And so I think to your point, 30 grams is phenomenal, but even like just, I've noticed that I do better when I just look for ways to add protein throughout my day. So not counting. It That's what I do. Yeah. Like just thinking like when I'm at the grocery store and I'm looking at the bars, right. Finding the one with, with the most protein or higher amounts of protein. Now I know that every time I reach for this bar, I'm going to get 20 grams, like just looking for ways or when I'm buying yogurts, what are the, what's the protein makeup of the yogurts? Now I'm going to find a flavor that I like, boom, let me buy 10. So now I don't have to think about it. So kind of trying to, to just be conscious of looking for ways to add protein in, I think can be really helpful because I totally agree. It's, it is maniacal at times and it's just not feasible for most people to actually sit down and count their, their macros every day. That's exhausting. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And I do the same thing. I just build things around my protein and my vegetables really, and just like fill in from there. I mean, it's sort of the rocks in the sand, you know, kind of metaphor. It's like, okay, my protein are my rocks and I'm going to fill in here. Um, and it's just, it, yeah, it just, it just works. It just works for me. Um, so do, do the same recommendations that we just talked about, you know, during this very tumultuous time of perimenopause transfer once the woman is into postmenopause? That's a good question. Um, to be honest, I, I don't, I don't think we totally know. Um, I think that, I think that the, if I had to hypothesize, I would hypothesize that an increased protein intake, um, increased high intensity training and increased resistance training would be three recommendations that would be absolutely beneficial in post-menopause. Are they as beneficial? I don't really, I don't know, to be honest. Um, I think that there's metabolism changes in perimenopause that, that are not all over the place, but kind of all over the place. Uh, and we do see a lot of things level out in post-menopause, but then also in post-menopause, we do see consistently lower estrogen levels. So when we're thinking about like the bone building or muscle quality measures, increased protein intake, resistance training, those are two things that are going to help maintain muscle. Uh, and thinking about a woman in postmenopause who's not using a hormone therapy, those would be beneficial strategies for those changes that we do see in postmenopause with bone and muscle with the reduced estrogen. Yeah, hundred percent. And I would, I'd say even, even with hormone therapy, even though like that is a preventative measure for, um, bone health, you know, as we, you know, as the FDA even approves it for, for bone health. And, and one of the other points that I like when people ask me that about 
post-menopause is, you know, I wrote for bicycling for like 27 years. And there were a lot of training books for cyclists, mostly men, 50 plus. And a lot of the advice is the same, you know, because there's there's an aging intersection that happens where muscle protein synthesis also slows down and all of that stuff happens as a, as a product of, of getting older, you know, so I think that it's fair to just continue on that track, you know, it's not. Yeah, gonna... I, I, I completely agree. There was also, there was a study and it was in um, animal models. It was in m- mice models, I think, but they looked at um, the effects of resistance training and, um, and hormone therapy in uh, type two diabetic mice, I think. And they saw that resistance training, um, was almost more beneficial that in, in an animal model for some of the outcomes, the, the metabolic outcomes. So it's not to say that, that, that those findings are completely transferable to postmenopausal women, but I think that it does show that, um, that exercise interventions may be more beneficial for women in postmenopause than even premenopause because of some of the, the adaptations that it, it allows for and how those adaptations kind of specifically go against some of the changes that we do see with reduced estrogen. Oh, definitely. I mean, when you talk about um, glucose metabolism and insulin resistance and all of those things, you know, that, that just makes sense. Mm -hmm. This is, this is a question that you might not have an answer to, but it's one that has come up and one that I don't actually have a great answer to myself. So, you know, we started this talking about sort of like the work that that is ongoing and that you have done with training with the fluctuations of the menstrual cycle itself. But then we go on to say like perimenopause, it's like throwing paint like a Jason Pollock at the wall. And it's, you know, so it, it, what does that, what happens then with a woman who maybe she's all been all in and she's like, yes, I know my luteal phase, my follicular phase. I, I, I have it kind of down, like what's what, and now she gets into this more chaotic phase. Is it just, I don't even know like what that looks like as far as tracking or trying to assist. I mean, do you have thoughts there? Yeah, that's a good question. It's something um, we weren't specifically talking about it, but um, Dr. Smith Ryan and I were chatting about phase-based training um, and mostly all the things that we don't know about it. Uh, and so like something that I had brought up was like protein kinetics, like how we say that progesterone is catabolic, but how, like, how is it, re- what, what are the mechanisms through which it, it, you know, kind of produces these, these catabolic outcomes, if you will. Um, and, and thinking about something about phase-based training too, um, I know that it can be a very divisive topic and I understand that. And I think that the reason or one of the reasons that it's so divisive is I don't think we all have a great understanding of what each other does. I don't think that researchers have a great understanding of what a strength and conditioning coach does versus a uh, personal trainer versus a nutrition practitioner. You know, like I think that we all have these jobs and we're within these silos and not very many of us have experience in more than one field or more than one position. And so when we're thinking about it and we're thinking about like what drives practice and what drives research the researcher is going to say that research drives practice and the practitioner is going to say that practice drives research. And so, you know, like with phase-based training, uh, another misconception I think is that it's the first 
line of attack, I guess, or the first thing that should be modulated with every woman. And I don't necessarily agree with that either. Like I personally, for myself, I don't do face-based training. I train when I have time. And when I remember to bring my shoes and both socks and a (laughs) pair of shorts, you know, like the, the demands for me, it's, it's more beneficial for me to make sure I eat enough protein. Right. And, and to shoot some days to even eat. Uh, and so when we're talking about like low hanging fruit and, and things like that with perimenopause, does it, will it be, you know, negative or less beneficial if, if a perimenopausal woman does a hard lifting session when she has maybe, you know, moderately high estrogen and really high progesterone, that's what we kind of categorize the luteal phase as. I don't think so. I think that, that the benefits of her doing the resistance training would outweigh any potential negative consequences of progesterone. And I think even with that, we don't know what the catabolic environment is. If protein supplementation, like, you know, some um, essential amino acids before training, um, is it, you know, you don't have to get every single window of nutrient timing, right. To still have the impact. So, you know, would we see the same outcomes of like a phase-based training intervention if protein supplementation prior to and following exercise were really consistent? And so, you know, I think it's a really good question. And I, I also don't think I know the answer. Um, but I don't, I, I, I think that the benefits of resistance training outweigh any potential negative consequence. And then I think additionally, kind of back to a a broader lens on the face-based training, I think for more women, it's, it's probably more important to nail down to like caloric intake and to be eating enough calories to sustain training in the first place. And then maybe your macronutrients might need some adjusting. And once you've kind of, you know, tweaked all those things and, and you're fully dialed in, then maybe let's look at how we're prescribing training load. So I think like in, in a general population sense, I don't think it's always necessary. I don't think it's necessary even for like every athlete. I think there are so many things that need to be dialed in first to get the benefit of differentiated training. What do you think? Yeah, I have, I have a lot of thoughts, obviously. Yeah. Um, but what you're saying, you, you said a couple of things that just sort of like turned on the light bulbs for me about where I've landed with this. And and I believe for everybody that getting to like, first of all, like understanding the underlying physiology is a great idea. Understand like what these hormones do and mm-hmm. how they might affect how you might feel and the outcomes of your training. Just just as an educational piece, right? Like yeah. have that in your head. And yes. then for me, like I didn't cycle sync per se either, but once I started working with Stacy and understood that underlying stuff and started connecting dots, then I was like, oh, I always feel this way and have a hard time with my thermoregulation before my period because of these shifts in plasma volume. And it just is like, okay, my hormones are doing this. What can I do to help myself as my hormones are doing this? That's how I started to think about it. And I would just like, hyperhydrate. I would do stuff to, to take it. So what I'm hearing you say is like all these light bulbs are going off. It's the same thing. Like, so you might make, like, I might have a heavy lifting day and I am feeling whatever, maybe I'm extra hungry or I'm whatever. It's just having that information in your head that, oh, I don't suck. My hormones might be doing this. What can I do? I probably do need more protein. Have I eaten enough? Um, make sure I'm going to make sure I recover. Like it helps you, I think, 
take care of yourself better because you know that underlying physiology, not that you have to be a, you know, a prisoner to this underlying physiology, but just like work with it. And that's, that's really the thesis of Stacey's life work. I think, you know, that yeah. it gets a little, it gets a little rigid. Like people take it and becomes rigid with it. And I don't, I don't think that's necessary when people do cycle sync and they have great success. And I see people who do, Part of that is, I think, understanding that and working with that as we're talking, but also it provides a structure where a lot of people have no structure. And just and just adding a structure alone, you're going to have benefit from adding structure when there is no structure, right? And I think that a lot of the benefits are there mm-hmm. and that's great. But I do think like just, just understanding your the, your hormones, what they can potentially do in, you know, how you feel and then being able to be like, oh, okay, this could be because my estrogen is here or whatever, you know, I'm before my period or I've always feel I'm on my period because I'm perimenopausal and this is insane. But it gives you like tools to sort of work with the, with your hormone fluctuation instead of just throwing in the towel or worse, just beating yourself up. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the things also that I hear you say is this, there's this belief aspect too. I think as athletes, we are forced to, to disconnect our mind from our body, right? Like, you know, what, what's that saying? Pain is weakness, leaving the body. And, you know, we're going to go so hard now so that, you know, in two months when you're at the end of a five set match, like you've got the stamina to push through. So like push through the pain now. Right. And so when you are done being an athlete, that is a really difficult relationship to form because it has been forced to disconnect for so long. And that's something like I, I learned this concept from Marcia Daniel at University of Washington. She calls it attunement to biofeedback. So teaching female athletes, especially when we're thinking about the professional opportunities for female athletes are, they're growing, but they're nothing compared to our male counterparts. So yes, I'm training this college volleyball player to compete in the ACC. And that's important. I'm also training her for the rest of her life. She's got four years here and she's got 60 more when she's done. And so teaching them to, to say like, how does my body feel? How does my body feel today? How does my brain feel today? Why do I feel that way? Was it training? Is it it, with this education piece of like, is this something consistently that I feel at every, every cycle at this point, then they can take ownership of interventions. If they know they sleep like garbage in the early luteal phase, they also know things to try. So if they come in and say, I slept like garbage, I say, well, did you try X, Y, and Z? Because we know those three things work for you. And if they didn't, then that's on them. Right. And so that ownership, that responsibility, but also that validation of it and being able to say, how do I feel today? Why do I feel that way? And then what do I need to go be successful? Because as a strength coach, that's not where their scholarship comes from. It's from the soccer field. It's from the volleyball court. So my weight room is like, that's the, that's the 90% of the iceberg under the water. It's to get them to the court. So some days they come in and they do need 30 minutes on the bike and a kettlebell and they're out of here. Right. But teaching them those skills of being able to do exactly just what you said of identifying how they feel, identifying patterns in it, and then taking responsibility and accountability to to bring their body and, and what they need and their, the demands on them into sync, I think is, is a really, I mean, it's one of the greatest gifts that as a coach, you can ever give an athlete. I agree with that a hundred percent. And that kind of, and as you, as you've mentioned, like that supersedes, that goes past the athletic existence, you know, 
And that's one of the reasons that I started the show because, you know, one of the earliest symptoms that I had when I started the menopause transition before I even knew that that was a thing um, was this anxiety that came up. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, and I wish at that point I had known it was hormonal because Mm -hmm. once you understand something, it turns down the volume on it. Yes. You know, and that's so, what research too. Like once you're tracking your symptoms, the there is a reduction in severity because you know you know why and you know when. Yeah, yeah it makes a huge difference. So it's yeah, that's that's great, great advice. I have I have loved everything that we have talked about here, Sam. I love that you are picking up this torch and running with it. And um, I'm so excited to see where you and Abby and everybody goes. Is there anything that we haven't talked about during this particular conversation that you wanted to bring up um, for the to leave our audience with? Um, I mean, gosh, this has been great. It's not that it's like hard to find people that care about menopause as much, but sometimes it is hard. Um, <laughs> I guess I would just I. I I had a tweet the other day. I was I was really on one when I was studying for comps, and I think maybe my my filter wasn't as strong as it could have been. Uh, and I said something along the lines of like, if men went through menopause, it would be a public health crisis. I liked it. I, I liked that tweet. <laughs> and we would have this like super integrated and expanse network of funding mechanisms to choose from to get like you know, Doctors with Ryan has been walking me through writing grants this summer. Uh, like as she writes them um, for these different intervention studies that we would love to do that would we know would be impactful. Like we just need the the money to be able to run the test to confirm it. And so I just was so frustrating. I was reading over one of her proposals and I was like, God, this is big time. Like this, it just, it has the power to change women's lives. And there was, you know, the article, and I I talked about it at the female athlete conference, but it was from the Mayo Clinic. And it talked about the impact of menopause symptoms in the workplace and how, you know, if we, if we, you do some modeling and we take all of the women that are menopausal age in America, and we take the, the data from the impact of symptoms of this cohort, and we apply it to these women, we can see that women lose, American women lose an average of $1.8 billion in lost working time per year. So it's like, it's so integrated in, in the, the, you know, invalidation of women's experiences and of women's pain and difficulty and the expectation and the invalidation of saying it's a natural process. Oh my gosh. Like, you know, and so I just, I guess I want to thank you for the work that you have done in just not just spreading awareness, but just opening lines of communication and giving women places to talk about what they've experienced and to find community in it and to, and to connect with each other. Because another thing that we know about menopause symptoms is that they're largely genetic. And yet, you know, when I asked, when I was, you know, writing my menopause contract with my mom, I said, well, you know, what did your mom go through? What did grandma go through? And she was like, I, I have no idea. And I would never ask, you know? And so the, the wisdom that's passed on from generations of women, we're not even told that that's a valid wisdom and that that would be helpful for the next generation to know. So, you know, long story, even longer. I, I, I do want to thank you for the work that you've done because it is meaningful. And while we need science part of it, we also need community and we need places where it it's not necessarily normalized, but it is validated in their experiences. And I think that, that what you've done has been such a huge part of that. So thank you. Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with Penny Zancudi and Rachel Gray and talk 
all about getting into parkour during perimenopause. It was a super fun conversation that made me want to go bound over some obstacles and try to run up walls. And it was pretty rad. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.